just by way of reminder, the book of Deuteronomy is somewhat like Moses' last sermon series. It's these final addresses to the congregation of Israel before they're about to enter into the promised land. And by the end of the book, Moses will be dead. And so he's really trying to finish well as a leader, recognize what's at stake, and send them on with his words because they won't have his presence. As we pick up in, um, <clears throat> in chapter 8, we come across uh, not just an important passage in the book of Deuteronomy, um, but an insightful passage in the Bible uh, with understanding how difficulty, trials, temptations, things like this work. What this chapter is, uh, uh, essentially, uh, is surprising. And so, notice as we begin here in chapter 8, verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you should be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Again, he begins, reiterates, if you will, this just big idea that he said a multitude of ways and will continue to repeat and rephrase throughout the book. All of the commandments that I'm about to lay before you, obey so that it will go well with you in the land. Verse 2, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, this is an interesting perspective because uh, if we go back to the book of Numbers, the perspective there is that this wilderness time is a wasted time, that these 40 years is effectively a meted out punishment, not for the people we're reading about here, but for their parents. But Moses takes those self-same 40 years and looks over them again for this audience and says, recognize that time for what it was. Remember that time for what it was for you, a time of testing to see what would be in your heart, whether you would humble yourself. And so he continues here, verse 3, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so we, dif we discover here that manna was to be a lesson not merely a meal, that God was teaching them something he could have provided in other ways. He provided in this way so that, Moses says, they would know that man needs more than merely bread, that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that precedes or comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, this is one of three places that Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy when he's being tempted in the wilderness in the book of Matthew, and in the book of Luke. And so you may remember Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, and at the end of 40 days he was hungry, and Satan appeared to him and said, if you really are the Son of God, as the voice proclaimed at your baptism, if you really are the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. And Jesus responded, it is written, man does not live by merely bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He quotes here, and now we see the significance of that quotation. He's not just quoting it because in and of itself it stands, but the focal point of this passage here of, uh, in its context is that Israel was kept alive not merely by nutrition, but by provision. That by God's command, by God's word, they were fed day after day after day. And so effectively... Jesus recognizes the temptation by the devil a, being a temptation of trust. Will you take action for yourself or will you trust the God who has given you these promises? And so he reminds Israel here and he says that the test was to teach you uh, that you are reliant, that you are dependent upon God. Now, dependent is a really important word because as we'll see, this is the foundation he's laying for what comes next. So remember that. He says, remember you are dependent, and then continue in verse 4. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplines you. 
And so here we get another aspect of the fatherly relationship. The father is the bread giver. Another statement that Jesus makes, he says, if you as children and your parents being evil, ask your parents for a loaf of bread, will they give you a scorpion? Will they give you a snake? And he says, how much more does the heavenly father give good things to those who ask? But here we get the second emphasis, not just provision, but also discipline. Now, Oftentimes when we read about God's discipline, the focus is on his correction when we do wrong. But the concept of discipline in the Bible is broader than that. It also means to train up, to raise, and that's the emphasis here. Not just that know for certain God will correct you when you do wrong, but know for certain he is intentionally preparing you grooming you, maturing you for what comes next. In other words, once again, those 40 years in the wilderness were not a waste for this generation. They were preparatory. He continues on here and he says in verse 6, So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive tree and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. Do you see the contrast that he's making here? The wilderness, there was nothing, and you were provided for with manna from heaven. But the land that you're going into is a land of plenty of grain, of plenty of barley, uh, where it says there will be uh, bread without scarcity. The land you came from was a land without water, a desert, and God gave water out of the rock. But the land that you're entering into is full of springs and rivers and fountains. He continues here in verse 9, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Listen to this, and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Okay. He's drawing a conclusion here. He says, God took care of you in the wilderness. This land is by his provision, so make sure and thank him. He's encouraging them towards gratitude. So when they get into the land, they see it for what it is. And then we get to the danger. He began this chapter with remember, and then he warns them in verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery." who led you through great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought the water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Notice this. He looks back and he says that time of natural, miraculous provision was a time of testing, a time of preparation. A time that you should look back and reflect on. And he warns them that there's a danger in abundance, in success, in the ease of life of the promised land that they are going into. You see, in a sense, the promised land is also a test. And oftentimes it's not a test we see in our own lives with the same clarity. It's not a test that we pass in our own lives with the same ease. It is truly and honestly often easier to trust God in times of difficulty than times of plenty. We don't always think that way. We aren't always aware of that, but it is very easy for us to be foul weather Christians who know to look for God in the storms, but forget him, neglect him in the nice weather. That's the danger here. He's saying when you get in, don't look around and think, look at this great deal I have made for myself and forget where it comes from. 
I think we can understand this to a degree because the Bible would maintain that every provision we experience in our lives, and that includes your weekly or biweekly or monthly paycheck, is truly God's provision. But we don't always act that way. And I suspect that if we came across something that was as miraculous as manna from heaven, it would be more natural to be grateful. It would be more natural to be good stewards of what we've been given. Now, that view is also limited. Just read the book of Numbers. There was grumbling and complaining despite the evident presence of God in their lives. But oftentimes we forget where our bread comes from. We begin to think, I baked this bread with ingredients that I purchased from my hard work. This is the kingdom that I have made. Moses is warning them and saying, look, the whole reason God had you wander for 40 years was to prepare you so that you would not forget. There is a test that comes with plenty, and it is a test that many fail. Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my uh, my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. That statement is just as true of us this evening as it was of Israel in these circumstances. You see, this is the way that Paul puts it in the New Testament. He says, what do you boast in, in that you were not given? You see, it's helpful for us oftentimes to look what lies underneath the answers that we give. And so we say, yes, but I work hard for my money, and that's probably true. But we have to recognize how much of your provision, how much of your income is essentially and inherently God-given. You have natural abilities and talents, propensities and strengths. You have, uh, you have the uh, influence of good examples and good upbringing. You were born here instead of there, right? How different would your income be if you were born in a small 100-person town, uh, you know, 100 miles out from New Delhi in India? And none of those things, your own inherent abilities, your upbringing, the place that you were born, none of those can you take credit for, but it really is the larger portion of what makes and provides and gives you the gifts that you have. Your gifts and talents are God-given gifts and talents. And so we need to remember the danger is for us as well, this danger that says, it's my power. It's my might that has brought me this wealth. He continues on here and he says, verse 18, you'll remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. He presses it even further. He says the reason you are receiving this land isn't because you are so great. It's because of the promises I made to your forefathers. So they can't even say, well, at least we're God's favorites. No, they're just the recipients of their ancestors' promises. And so the danger again in verse 19 that you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Now the danger of idolatry is ever present in times of difficulty and in times of plenty, but it's especially present for Israel in their plenty because the the, people people who lived in the land, the people groups, the Canaanites and the Perizzites uh, and all the others that lived in the land, the gods that they worshipped were directly tied to fertility, to abundance, uh, to the granting of rain and these things. And so there was always a danger that they would turn to these false gods and forget the God who had actually provided for them. And so he warns them that if they do so, they shall surely perish. Verse 20, like the nations that the Lord Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of your Lord, your God. So just to summarize here, how do you protect yourself from the dangers, from the trials of plenty? You have to remember. You have to remember 
lest you forget. You have to remember. You have to reflect on, um, on God's provision when times were hard. Now, it continues on into chapter 9, and he begins again with, Hear, O Israel. Grabs their attention again. Sets up what's right in front of them again. You are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess the nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, giants, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Notice here how Moses is stacking the deck against them. He wants them to understand what they're up against. Now remember, back at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 13, this was the reason they refused to enter the land. Moses doesn't hide those things. He doesn't remove them. He doesn't say, look, it's, it's not going to be that difficult. They're not really that big of a people. The cities aren't really that strong. If anything, he adds layer upon layer of the reality of what they're facing. Why is he doing so? Look at verse 3. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. Now, Moses just used this phrase, consuming fire, in a very different way. Just a few chapters ago, he talked about Israel being gathered around Horeb at Mount Sinai and observing all of the smoke and fire and warning them to keep the commandments that I give you today because the Lord your God is a consuming fire. And now he says that self-same consuming fire is on your side, will be working for you towards victory. He says, he will destroy them and subdue them before you so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Now, the question is why? Why are they out? Why are we in? Why are we the victors and why will they be defeated? Why will we already see here that it's not because of their own strength, but notice what he also wants them to understand in verse 4. Do not say in your heart, After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of those nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Now, some people worry that these chapters, especially chapter 7, also here in chapter 9, that this section that lays out what's sometimes called the Holy War of Israel can be a precedent for oppressive nations to put God on their side and say, we by divine right take what is ours. But if you really read this passage, it picks away at most nationalistic sentiment. It really removes any possibility. So he's already said in chapter 7, don't think this is because you are so strong or powerful. Okay? And so this nationalistic, oppressive reality that we see play out internationally where nations just go, survival of the fittest. We're the strongest, so we take what we want. That's not what's going on here with Israel. And now we see the second thing. That they can't look at the wickedness of the people and go, oh, I see, God is bringing us into the land because we are righteous and they are wicked. He says, no, don't think that's what's going on here. He says, rightly, rightly you understand that the inhabitants are wicked and that's why God is doing this, but you cannot infer from their wickedness your righteousness. And this is also an essential um, destructive character to the way that these things can be misused. Oftentimes these ideas of manifest destiny and God's chosen people imply out there are the pagan, the barbarian, the you know, subhuman. We are the ones who are right. And let me just point out to you that this is not something that merely is caused by religion. It has been the irreligious nations that had this mentality of they being the true civilization whether it be socialism or fascism or otherwise, most of them atheistic that took this approach and said, we are the real supermen. 
We are the real human beings. They are merely barbarian and use this approach. But here for Israel, they're not to understand that way. In fact, it's just the opposite. Notice what he continues on and he says here. He says, he says in verse 5, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And so it's because of God's promises, and it's an act of judgment because of their wickedness. Continuing on in verse 6, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Okay, and so he presses here and he says, it's not because you are more righteous. In fact, consider your own wickedness. And he sums it up primarily in stubbornness and in rebellion. And then he begins to illustrate. Verse 8, even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water, and the Lord gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And so he's walking again through the events of Mount Sinai, and he says, I was on the mountain for 40 days, and God wrote himself on two tablets of stone the ten words and then verse 11, at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you've brought up from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Now notice the contrast here. Yes, the Canaanites were wicked, but they were wicked in ignorance. Israel's wickedness here begins at the base of the mountain where God's presence, this consuming fire, is clearly in front of them. Days, just a month after they've heard out of the fire the voice of God speaking these ten words. Just a few months after they had been miraculously led out from Egypt. And here, on the day that the covenant is being formed, they are breaking it. Notice verse 13, furthermore, the Lord said to me, I've seen this people and behold, it's a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So we're drawn in here into the cloud where God has revealed to Moses what's going down below and he says, he says, I should just wipe them out. He says, Moses, let me wipe them out and I will make of your descendants a whole new line, and I will give them the reward. I will give them the promises. Now, this is not without precedent. This conversation sounds a lot uh, like what happens back in Genesis 6, when God wipes out the entire world except for a single family and starts fresh with the family of Noah. But he says this to Moses, and the Jews have always understood that when it says there in verse 14, let me alone, although it is a negative statement, it is truly an invitation. Right? Saying let me alone is basically saying, uh, like, like in Hook, when Hook is about to take his own life with a gun and he's saying, don't try and stop me, Smee. Right? But what he really means is stop me. By saying, let me alone, he's leaving actually the door open for intervention. It's an invitation of sorts. So, um, so verse 15, I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hand. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden half, calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and I threw them out of my hands and I broke them before your eyes. Now I think sometimes we misunderstand what that action is. 
Okay. First off, it's not that Moses is coming down the mountain and he's so shocked that he drops the tablets. Okay. He's not overwhelmed by the action of Israel. This is clearly a deliberate act. And although it is an act of anger, it's not merely an act of anger. These two tablets represent the covenant. And so Moses breaks them in the view of the people because the covenant is broken. It's day one of their newfound relationship with God. And they've already, before he even got down the mountain, already broken the covenant by creating this idol and worshiping uh, worshiping it. And so, verse 18, Then I lay prostrate before the Lord, as before, forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him, and I prayed for Aaron also at that same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust, and I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. And so he says here, basically, remember what he's doing, remember what we're talking about. He's talking about their wickedness and their stubbornness. And here we see it's Moses' intercession, it's Moses' action that they still stand here today at all. He continues in verse 22, at Tabra also, at Massa, at Kibroth, Havita, you provoked the Lord to wrath. These are all places along the wilderness where the people grumbled and complained and groaned. In fact, if you look at the translations for all of these names, um, they're, they're not good names for places. Okay, they're all labeled for the sins of Israel. He says, look, just open your travel journals and remember who you are as a people. Verse 23, when the Lord your God sent you from Kadesh Barnea, that was the land, uh, the border of the land when they refused to enter in in Numbers 13. He said, go up and take possession of the land that I've given you and you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So I lay prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you've redeemed through your greatness, whom you've brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, Because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land, he promised them. And because he hated them, he brought them out and put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Now, we've already looked at this intercession once, so I don't want to spend a lot of time here. But I do want to just remind you here that the emphasis is all on God. He doesn't say, Lord, Israel can do better next time. Right? He doesn't throw a promise keepers convention and set up a bunch of new vows for Israel and say, this time we're going to keep our side of the bargain. Instead, he says, God, you have made these promises. You have brought them out. And if you don't protect them, if you don't bring them in as you've promised, those onlooking other nations, including Egypt, will go, God couldn't do it. It was a good attempt on his end, but he couldn't follow through, and so he left them to die in the wilderness. At that time, verse 1 of chapter 10, the Lord said to me, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut the two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly and the Lord gave them to me. Okay, and so he walks them through the same process again. 
He says, make an ark, bring it up the mountain, make two pieces of stone. God writes on them again, the same words that he wrote last time. But notice here, the restoration of this covenant is not based on Israel at all. It's based on God's divine fiat and Moses' intercession. And so they can't look back on this going and say, yeah, but we fixed that. We rectified that. We made it right. No, it's solely a demonstration of God's grace that the covenant continues. Verse 5, I turned and came down from the mountain and I put the tablets in the ark that it made and there they are as the Lord commanded me. Now there's a parenthetical here. The people of Israel journeyed from Biroth ben Ejakin to Mashra. There Aaron died and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as a priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Golgotha, and from Golgotha to Jetbathah, and a land with brooks of water. And at that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister to him, to bless in his name to this day. Therefore Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. Now why is this parenthetical here? Remember, it was specifically pointed out early in the chapter that Moses was the leader responsible for this rebellion. It was he who had taken the jewelry of all of Israel and turned it into this golden calf. He was, if you will, on the clock while Moses was away. And yet even with him, because of Moses' intercession, not only did God let Aaron live past that day and he lived into a ripe old age, but also His sons became the Levitical priesthood. And they're the ones who were to oversee and protect this same covenant that they had broken. Okay, And so the emphasis is God has been gracious and faithful despite your unfaithfulness. Verse 10, I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you, and the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of these people, so that they may go in and possess this land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. And there's one part here that's not included in this reprisal of the earlier story that I think is worth mentioning. The way that God has put it in this chapter over and over again is, You are a stubborn people. And the words there are literally a stiff necked people. It's an agrarian symbol. The idea is of a cow that you put a yoke on and it's straining against the yoke. An especially appropriate term for Israel who's created this golden calf, right? Now they've become as stubborn as the cow they worship effectively. But what's striking and not recorded for us here but is in the intercession of Moses back in Exodus is he says please forgive the people because they are a stubborn people. Not, they are no longer that person, not they've changed. God, he says, show them grace, come with them because they are a stubborn people. And so, once again, the emphasis that he's trying to make here, remember, is this isn't about your righteousness. You haven't earned your way into the land. God has been gracious and gives this to you freely. If anything, we shouldn't be surprised by the judgment God brings On the Canaanites, we should be surprised by the gift he gives to the Israelites. That's what he's trying to get them to understand. That's the emphasis. And see, this is the thing about God's mercy. God's justice should be expected because he is just. His character requires it. But his mercy is always freely given. It's a gift. And so he says here, just because I'm using you as a tool of judgment doesn't make you a righteous tool. As one commentator put it as I was reading this afternoon, God's rod of his wrath can be a bent rod. doesn't have to be straight. In fact, this comes back to haunt Israel because when God brings in Babylon, he brings a people terribly wicked to bring judgment on Israel. Because Babylon is righteous? No, because Israel is wicked. And even Babylon doesn't get a free pass because they're the rod in the hand of God's wrath. But they are judged for their sin. You see, what we see here is that God is totally capable of doing two things at once. Of being completely just in judgment, uh, and yet at the same time, judging the instrument of his judgment. 
And so he continues here in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk on all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord of which I'm commanding you today for your good. There are many places where this question, what does the Lord require to you, stated in Scripture, and a lot of them are in Deuteronomy. Here he gives five different verbs. Okay? Catch them again as we reread it. What is the Lord required of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes. This is a passage that would be worthwhile to meditate on. If you're not familiar with the biblical idea of meditation, it's different than the Eastern idea of meditation. The Eastern idea of meditation is about emptying. It's about not thinking about anything. It's about uh, trying to focus on nothing at all. But the biblical idea of meditation, the one that Joshua is exhorted to in Joshua chapter 1, the one that all God's people are exhorted to in Psalm 1, where it says, uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful, but he meditates on the law day and night. That meditation that we're all called to. It is about focusing, filling your mind with a small piece of scripture. Oftentimes, People point out that the word for meditate is close to the Hebrew word for masticate, to chew. And so they, they compare this image to chewing cud, something that animals with multiple stomachs do when they can't digest something like grass very easily, and so they regurgitate it, they chew on it more, and then they swallow it again. That's as gross as it sounds, so let me give you a better metaphor. Okay? Biblical meditation is like steeping tea. When you make tea, you need hot water, and you need tea leaves, most likely in a tea bag or some sort of carrying case. You cannot just take the tea and just slap it in the water and have tea. Right? You let it rest in the water, and the hot water and the thyme is steeping. It draws out the flavor of the tea. And the longer you leave the tea leaves in, the stronger the tea gets as it draws out all of the essence of those tea leaves. That's what meditation is. Meditation is to take a verse like this one and to think on it, to ponder it, to interrogate it, to ask, what would my life look like if I believed what this is saying? To ask, what does this verse tell me about who God is? To ask, like is asked here, what does God require of me according to this verse? I think for many of us, we have a fast food approach of scripture where we read the same way we would read a blog with a scroll bar. We just kind of slide through the scripture and then we set it aside. But we're called as Christians to meditate and this would be a great place to start. Tomorrow morning, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 and 13 and just read this and then reread it and close your eyes and try and recite it. And then, like I said, interrogate the text. Ask, what does it look like to fear the Lord? How is that different than to love the Lord? How can both of those be true at the same time? If my neighbor believed this, how would his relationship with me be? How would I portray these things in the workplace? That's meditation, and that's a good place for it, because it really is one of the best summaries of what God requires of us in his law. There's another one, of course, given in one of the minor prophets, which says this in three ways. And what does God require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? It's another one that's worth meditating on. So he states it here and he continues. Verse 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that's in it. Okay, so we get this incredibly big description of God. Every once in a while, someone will try and argue that the God presented to us in Deuteronomy is not a monotheistic God. It doesn't say, here, O Israel, the Lord your God is the only God. It says one God. It doesn't say that there is no other gods before him, but set no other gods before him. And they'll try and argue that originally Israel didn't have a monotheistic belief. But I want you to notice the territory that God claims for himself in this verse. All of the heavens... All of the earth and everything in between. Okay. There's no room 
for any other gods to have any other territory. This is the God, the only God, the creator God of Genesis that we're talking about. But then he does something that is absolutely profound. You see, oftentimes, we learn about God by who he identifies with. So one of God's most favorite descriptions in the Old Testament is, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He takes this association he has with these three patriarchs, and he says, this is who I am. It's his identity. Here we have this profound, transcendent statement of God, and then notice who he identifies with next. Verse 15, yet the Lord sets his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskins of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods, the Lord of lords. And so he says here, God associates with you. He's your God, you're his people. And he says, because of that, because the God of all gods, the only God, the God of all the universe has chosen you, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Now, clearly he's using covenantal language here. Remember, that was a sign of the covenant that was given to Abraham, that every male of Israel would circumcise themselves. But interesting note, the people that Moses is are speaking to right here, according to the book of Joshua, aren't circumcised. Their parents who died in the wilderness were, but they neglected this responsibility. So when, in the book of Joshua, they enter into the promised land, the first thing they have to do is circumcise all the uncircumcised people. It's interesting in this, in this point here. But not only that, he doesn't say merely circumcise your sons. He says circumcise your hearts. Now remember the contrast from early in the chapter. You are a stiff-necked people. Circumcise your hearts. It's intriguing to me. Because stiff-necked is visible, external, uh, it has to do with forces at work, right? You being resistant. But when he says circumcising the heart, he moves past an external symbol and into an internal reality, to an attitude. The idea of circumcise your heart is obviously, um, is obviously that in the same way they were, they were to be set aside by the symbol of circumcision, their hearts are really to be devoted solely, completely to God. Their hearts are to be circumcised. This is an image that the prophets will pick up on and emphasize. And so he says, this God of all the universe is yours. That's who he associates with, the God of your fathers. But then notice he pushes it even higher, verse 17. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Okay. When the Hebrew language puts words together like that, it's a superlative. Okay. We already saw it with heaven of heavens but also holy of holies, or even song of songs, right? That's the inscription that's given to what we sometimes call the Song of Solomon. It's the song of all songs, the greatest song. Here it says that this is the God of gods, the Lord of lords. It continues, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who's not partial and takes no bribe. And then notice this, verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Who does God identify with here? The mighty King of kings and Lord of Lord gods, the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner. You see, there is an intense ethic of justice for the least protected, for the least or the most vulnerable of society. And here it's piled up with these great titles for God of being who he is. You see, he continues on. In fact, he doesn't just say, this is who God is. He says, because this is who God is, because he's your God, this is who you should be. And so notice verse 20, sorry, verse 19. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you will swear. And so there's this two-part here. Earlier, in, uh, earlier we had the law given and we saw that it was divided into two aspects. Effectively, love God and love your neighbor. 
But here it's pushed further. Love God and love the foreigner. Jesus will take it even further and he'll say, love God and love your enemy. Verse 21 says about God, he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So the final note he makes here, the final exhortation he makes is about God's faithfulness. He says, when you went into Israel, you were just 70 people. 12 patriarchs and their families for a total of 70. He says, but now you've come out as numerous as the stars of heaven. Why does he select that image? Because that's the promise God gave to Abraham. Abraham, look in the sky. Count the stars if you can. He says, look, look where God's brought you. Look where God has you now. And this sets him up for the final kind of conclusion of this first section of Deuteronomy. We'll do chapter 11 tonight, but chapter 12 begins an exposition on the 10 words. A a review and a renewal of the law for these people before they enter the promised land. But before we move into chapter 11, I just want to stress this idea of the God of the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner. This is what he's praised for in Psalm 146. Listen to what the psalmist says here. Beginning in verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord of God, who made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless by the way of the wicked, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God chooses to identify himself with the least of society, and he says, these are mine. That's why in Proverbs it says, when we give to to the poor, we actually loan to God himself. God cares about the impoverished, about the vulnerable, about those on the wrong side of mistreatment and oppression, and he identifies with those people. Now, I just want to point out to you tonight that if you go back and you read uh, the religions, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians of this time, you'll find similar statements about the greatness of their gods, and then who do they identify with? With the kings, with the powerful, with the mighty, with the rulers. This is so unique. This is one of the unique aspects um, of Israel's ethic was this emphasis on taking care of those who were the most vulnerable. And this is not just Old Testament ethics. James puts it this way. He says, true religion visits those who are in prison, takes care of the orphan and the widow. Why? Because that's the God who we worship. That's who he is. We become his hands and his feet when we do this work, when we stand against injustice, when we, like Job, break the teeth of the oppressor. It's part of who God is. It's how he desires to be identified as the God of the fatherless. Let's finish up in chapter 11. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today... Since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God. He says, look back on what you've seen. Remember what God has taught you. His greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all this land. What he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots. How he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you. And how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. And what he did to you in the wilderness. So exhibit A, consider what God did to the Egyptians. How he routed them. 
how he overcame them, how he buried them in the Red Sea. And then equal opportunity here, consider what God has done to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. Okay. All of the acts of judgment that God had carried out, all of the places where he demonstrated his holiness and brought about consequences. Verse 6, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Elab, the sons of Reuben, and how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. You see this? He puts all these things in the discipline of the Lord. But remember, discipline isn't the same thing as punishment. Discipline is instructive. Discipline is so that they learn and grow and mature. He says, you've seen all these things so that you wouldn't make the same mistake. Verse 8, you shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God swore to your fathers to give them and their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it. You may have a footnote there that says, uh, watered it with your feet. We, we're pretty sure that has to do with an irrigation system that would involve a foot pump. Okay? But the idea is, in Egypt, your crops uh, were basically watered with your own sweat. Because all of the water comes from the Nile and has to be brought directly to the crops and the the fruitfulness of the land of Egypt stands and falls with the flooding of the Nile. He says, not so with the land you're going into. This is a well-watered land. And so notice the contrast here. He says here, verse 10, uh, not like the land of Egypt from which you've come when you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables, but the land you're going to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drink water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for, the eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. He says God is the primary gardener of Israel. He provides the water. He irrigates the field. He brings the growth. Okay? It really is in some sense a paradise. Verse 13, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give rain for the land in its season, the early rain that's in the spring and the latter rain that's in the fall, that you may gather your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Okay? And so one way is that they obey. They keep the commandments and the crops will be watered and they'll have abundance and it will be good. But if they turn to idols... The contrast here, verse 17, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. He says here, you should lay them up in your heart. That's another thing that meditation does. When we meditate on the word of God, it becomes part of us. We steep it in our hearts instead of tea in a cup, and we draw it out into ourselves. And so he says that should be a part of our life. And not only that, but we should pass it on to the next generation. Verse 19, you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, all the time. Verse 20, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore your fathers to give them, as long as your heavens are above the earth. Now I want you to notice here, that what he's envisioning here is effectively that God has given Israel everything they need to succeed here. Right? It's been spoken to them. It's been put on the tablets of stone. By the end of Deuteronomy, it will be written down and handed to them in a book. Verse 22, For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him, 
Then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess the nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to Lebanon, from the river, uh, the river Euphrates to the western sea, that's the Mediterranean. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he has promised you. And so we can see here that in this introduction, Moses is setting up that the entire future of Israel hinges on obedience or disobedience, of worship or idolatry, of keeping or breaking the covenant. Now, that's not the whole story. We'll find this other thread that runs through Deuteronomy that God is determined to bring about his plan no matter what they do. And we already have good evidence of that, don't we? Because they are a stubborn and rebellious people. But the two go hand in hand. And so the way that it will be reconciled later in the book will be this, that if they continue to walk away from the Lord, he will remove them from the land. But even Moses, here in the book of Deuteronomy, can look past that and see when God will graciously restore them and do something entirely new. There's a book that I've mentioned many times as we've gone through this, and since we're in the last book of the Pentateuch, I'll mention it again. But John H. Salehammer has a book called The Meaning of the Pentateuch. And it's a big one. And it's a hard read, and it's one you have to read with a Bible open because oftentimes he just drops really important footnotes in and doesn't quote them entirely. Um, But it's a good read, and what he argues is when you look at what he calls the editorial seams, the places between the narrative where it breaks, and he shows oftentimes you have a song about the coming king in these seams. So like in Genesis 49, for example, or in the songs of Balaam. And he shows that in each one of those editorial seams, each one of these places where we find intentionally inserted spots effectively, that it looks forward to the Messiah, to this coming king. And so he argues that the purpose of the Pentateuch is to show the failure of the old covenant and the need for the new. That it's written right into the book itself. And I actually think a pretty compelling case can be made. But we see it here today. That God is both mentioning and warning them about them not keeping up the end of the bargain. But we'll see as we go through the book that God's going to be faithful beyond that. And effectively, despite the fact that it's Israel who breaks the covenant, in Jesus Christ it was God who will be broken to fix it. Let's finish here in verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. Two choices, two paths. He'll return to this in his big conclusion at the end of the book. I'm setting before you a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. Now let's deal with something that I think is pretty important to address here. This makes life Relatively simple in black and white. Obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to cursing. And so oftentimes, we can look at life, even in Israel, but especially in our own lives, and we can say, okay, is it really that simple? Is it the righteous who are blessed and the wicked that are cursed? Do the goods go to those who obey and the disobedience always get what they deserve? And even the psalmist Even David says, when I looked at the lives of the wicked, I almost stumbled. It almost tripped up my whole faith. I almost walked away from the Lord because they have all of this wealth despite the injustice that they perpetuate, despite the oppression that they do. They live long lives and have big families and are untouched by disease. And even when they do die, they die surrounded by their lover or by those who love them, their families in their bed, in their sleep. When you look at the book of Job, this is the complaint of Job's compatriots. Job, your life is a mess. Clearly God is angry at you. If you just repent, I'm sure God would stop. You just got to stop being such a bad guy. And Job maintains that's not what's going on. You see, this idea here is focused primarily on the covenant and a specific aspect of the covenant, the land. 
The blessings and the cursings that we're talking about here are for Israel and for Israel as a nation in the land of Israel, not for individual Israelites and not for all those in the world who choose or choose not to follow God. In fact, we discover as we read through the Bible that Jesus warns us that the life of following him often includes tribulation and difficulty. But the idea here is of the broad blessing of what God will do in the land as effectively a barometer of his relationship with the nation, as a warning system before they're uh, ejected from the land entirely. And so there's this two sides, these two facets, blessings and curse. And notice here, he sets up an object lesson. When you get into the land, verse 29, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Now that's kind of a confusing way to put things, but later in the book we find out what this means. The congregation of Israel is going to go to these two mountains and they're going to split in half. And Joshua is going to read the law down below. And he's going to read especially the blessings and the cursings at the end. And one people are going to shout out the blessings and the other are going to shout out the cursings. It's this broad object lesson. But why these mountains? What's so significant about Gerizim and Ebal? I would argue absolutely nothing. It may be that Gerizim is a mountain that's covered in life and Ebal is more like a stony cliff. At least that would be a suiting idea. But the real reason they're going here is found in the next few verses. Verse 20, Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road towards going down to the sun in the land of the Canaanites who live in Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak of Morah? That's what's significant, these two mountains. Flip back with me really quickly to Genesis chapter 12. This is where the covenant is formed with Israel's first descendant, or first ancestor, Abraham, the father of their faith. So notice verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, go out from your country and to your kindred and your father's house and to a land that I will show you. Okay, and then he goes on and he describes the blessings he's going to give Abraham. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so not knowing where he's going, Abraham sets out. He goes, okay? Now notice what happens in verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they gathered, and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. Okay, effectively, the trees, the oaks of Morah, is where God said, You're here. This is the land that I will give your descendants. And so now, as Israel enters in to claim that promised land, they go to those same oaks and are chosen there, probably for amplification, for auditory reasons. They take the two closest mountains, so that they can shout across at one another and hear personified these blessings and curses. Going back to verse 31 of chapter 11 in Deuteronomy. For you are to cross over to the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land the Lord God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I'm setting before you today. Now, just a quick question. How many different ways and how many different times did Moses effectively say that last statement in just the three or four chapters we covered tonight? Over and over again, that you'll be careful to do the statutes and don't forget the commandments and also the rules that you would obey the Lord, that you would fear him, that you would love him. You see, Moses is a good preacher. I've taught classes on preaching before and I always tell my students as lesson number one, that a sermon is about one thing. Okay? That's what makes it a sermon. That's what gives it its unity. The sermon meaning, the sermon message that Moses has to give here is really simple. It's choose to obey. 
right? And so he just repeats it, and he rephrases it, and he reminds them, and he illustrates it from this side, and he illustrates it from that side, and he excuses away a lot of misunderstandings. He says, don't think obedience doesn't matter. Don't think you've already arrived and that you're already righteous. Don't think that this is going to be a breeze. Forget, don't forget where you came from. Remember how God has disciplined you and taught you. He lays this all out, and it's here in chapter 12 that he's going to begin to go, okay, the rules, the statutes, the commandments that I keep telling you to obey, let's walk through them. Okay. And what we get for the majority of the rest of the book, like I said, is an exposition of the law, where effectively what he does is he takes the ten words and he organizes them into sections and walks through them one by one. That seems to break down in a few places, but in general, that's a good gist for where we are headed. But we'll go ahead and close there for the night. Um, and let me just give a quick, uh, a quick announcement, which is that next Sunday and the following Sunday, we will not be gathering. Um, I'm going to be out of town. And frankly, I love doing this too much to miss out. Uh, nobody's going to do it for me. I'm not going to let that happen. So uh, not for the rest of February will we have this service, but we will return in March. Um, if you can't remember, well, let's just pull it up in a calendar. If you can't remember if it's time yet, just check the website. I'll put an alert right on the homepage um, to let you know when it's off. But we will not be gathering the 25th or the 4th of March, and we'll return to Deuteronomy 12 on March 11th. Let's pray. God, although we have to be careful recognizing the difference between the land covenant that you made with Israel for the land of Palestine, for the blessings and cursings of the covenant that you made with the people of Israel in our own lives, although we have to be careful that the blessings that we'll experience in our lives are not merely and not always material, and sometimes they're incongruent with material blessings. And although the cursings we may seem to experience in spades without denying our righteousness, it is still true that obedience in the long run is what you call us to and that you promise for those who obey a blessing. And we long and we desire tonight, Lord, as your children and as your servants, to live our lives in such a way that we hear you say at the end, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Because the true blessing is to be in relationship with, finally, fully, and completely, with the blesser, with the giver of all good things, with the God who is good. Truly, Lord, our promised land is in heaven. It's the place where we long for because it's the place where you are. So I ask God that you would help us to, uh, like Moses exhorts his church here, help us to remember who you are and what you've done. Help us to reflect on your discipline and the things that you've taught us. Help us to meditate on your word I pray that you'd make us like the psalmist in Psalm 119, that we would uh, find that your word is sweeter than honey, that we would pursue it in the night hours and first thing in the morning, that we would speak it to our children, that it would come out of our mouth in our relationships, that we would preach it to ourselves, and that we would heed it, that we would obey it, that we would follow it. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.